This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 92 recorded on December 14th, 2021. I'm your co-host, Tim Craig from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with my fantastic co-host, Brenda Weigel from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Welcome, Brenda. Thank you, Tim, and hi, everyone. It's a pleasure again to join you. And we have another special guest with us today, Dr. Elias Sayor. He's an Associate Director of Neurosurgery and Pediatrics at the University of Florida. He's also director of the Pediatric Cancer Immunotherapy Initiative there and a principal investigator in the RNA Engineering Lab at the University of Florida Brain Tumor Immunotherapy Program and the Preston A. Wells Jr. Center for Brain Tumor Therapy. That's a mouthful, but uh, <laughs> up to all those titles. Welcome, Elias. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's honestly an honor and a privilege to be here. I appreciate that. Yeah, just briefly, uh, I gleaned from your background, your your CV, you got your bachelor's at Fordham College, your MD at University of Buffalo, you uh, went to Cohen Children's Medical Center for pediatric residency, did your HEMOC fellowship at Duke, where you then also got a PhD on top of that, and then uh, went to Florida as assistant professor and became associate. Have four up nearly 40 publications and 15 patents and funded by tons of different private organizations. And you have the distinction of being hip to mRNA vaccines before they were cool and everyone else is doing them. So congratulations on all that. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I, I once upon a time thought I was the only one working in this space, but uh, couldn't have imagined that I would be getting um, RNA nanoparticle vaccines, just not my own, uh, uh, only a few short years ago. So it's, it's pretty remarkable how, how much the field changed in a short period of time. Yeah. I mean, it's it, uh, as, as bad as COVID is, I, I guess we can think of this as one good thing that's come out of it, that this technology has really been proven useful and you're trying to apply it to cancer. So why don't we start with just reminding our audience, uh, surely most people know by now what an RNA vaccine, nanoparticle vaccine is, but maybe just start with a little bit of the basics to get everybody on the same page. Tell us what it is and sort of how you make them. Sure. So mRNA is, is really information. It's information that is in all of our bodies. Uh, so DNA is really the uh, thing that makes anyone who they are, but that DNA has to be communicated in the form of information, which is RNA, before that information is made into hardware, protein, which makes us who we are. It gives us our hair color, our, our eye color, our, our, our bones, our uh, our, our sense of, you know, selves, the structure that makes us is the protein, but that protein is made from information in the form of RNA that is transcribed from the DNA that makes up all of us. So mRNA is, is just information, but information is power. I mean, if, if information can be used to communicate things, then at our disposal is the opportunity to communicate anything, anything we want to any cell that we want 
for any purpose that, that we want. And that makes mRNA a very powerful and vital technology, not just for cancer, but any potential application. That sounds pretty potent, pretty useful. Practically speaking, uh, because we want to kind of focus on, you know, curing brain tumors, which is the most common cause of death due to disease in children. Yeah. Uh, is this, are, are these things that you have to make from each individual patient, or do you have sort of a cocktail off the shelf? Yeah, so um, to, to answer your first question a little bit, how do we actually make these? How do we get mRNA, uh, specifically from brain cancer patients? There are different ways of doing this. We can from a biopsy, from as little as 100 cells, uh, from, a, from, from a brain tumor biopsy in a child, we can extract all the RNA from that patient's tumor and make a personalized vaccine against the information in an individual's specific tumor. The other thing we can do is make off-the-shelf vaccines. So some pediatric cancers, diffuse intrinsic pontinglioma, DIPG is one of them, have certain mutations, mutations that are expressed across patients. Uh, this would be the one example, the H3K27M mutation. And so the mRNA technology actually allows us to take just that piece of information, that mutation, and alert the immune system to this mutation being a foreign enemy. So not only can we make personalized vaccines from small amounts of tumor cells that are collected from a biopsy, we can actually make off-the-shelf vaccines using this approach that can be leveraged for all patients with DIPG using this against this particular mutation. This can also be done against other mutations as well and other cancers, including pediatric brain cancer. But those are the two different approaches we're looking into in terms of vaccine manufacturing for, for the children we serve. Thank you, Alice. It's, it's fascinating to think how broad reaching this technology can be. Can you kind of highlight for us what makes an RNA vaccine is in, in the light of pediatric brain cancer better than other vaccine approaches? Because there have been other types of vaccine approaches utilized. And is there anything that makes sort of an mRNA vaccine uniquely beneficial in brain cancer with regards to blood-brain barrier penetration, delivery of it? Is, can you lump it into something that it makes it better for, for approaching brain, brain cancer in children? Great questions, great questions. In general, the paradigm of any vaccine, you know, when we look at, in, you know, I became a pediatrician because, in part because of prevention, you know, vaccines, which have largely, uh, in my mind at least, been one of the greatest, if not the greatest medical advance preventing disease before it starts. But all of these vaccines require boosts, and those boosts take time. Uh, so looking at any primary vaccination series in a, in a child, these things are given over the course of months, years, really, before you get to titers, protective levels of immunity. And in cancer, you don't have that kind of time. You don't have months, you don't have years. The other difference is in cancer, many of these patients have been treated with chemotherapy and other things. And even the cancer itself can affect how functional the immune system is. This is certainly true in certain types of brain cancer. So there are significant challenges to the current vaccine technologies in terms of the time it takes to boost 
and in terms of the immune system being a little more uh, difficult to manipulate in, in, in the cancer setting. mRNA, uh, I believe, can overcome both of these challenges. Uh, mRNA can induce a response with only one vaccine. You know, we, we saw this with the COVID-19 uh, you know, pandemic. There was talk of one vaccine uh, giving protection to people, which is, which is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Even flu, which we, is one vaccine, it's one vaccine that's boosted year after year after year after year. So the idea that against an infection no one had ever seen before, that a single vaccine could, could give pretty significant protection to people is absolutely remarkable. And the mRNA as information can harness multiple arms of the immune system, which I'm happy to talk about more, to give a, a very strong immunologic response that culminates in a T cell response. So we, there are different arms of the immune system, I, I, and I can talk more about that, but ultimately you want the trained army members of the immune system to be able to get to the tumor, recognize it and kill it. And to answer the second part of your question, these trained killers, these T cells can cross the blood brain barrier. So while we struggle in pediatric brain cancer with finding chemotherapy agents that penetrate, even the best that we have in many of these contexts, temozolomide, uh, which is a standard of care for gliomas, glioblastoma certainly, uh, less than 30% of this drug actually crosses and gets in, and yet it's a standard. And the rest of that drug is just providing toxicity. So the value of the immune system is these nanoparticles, RNA vaccines don't need to go to the brain tumor. They just need to train the immune system somewhere in the body and the immune response that culminates in those, that trained lethal force, those T cells, they will naturally cross and they will exert their effector functions, their killing capacity against these tumors. So three questions arise from what you just said. One simple one, does that mean you sort of give it like a COVID vaccine into the arm uh, or is there a better place to give it? So great question. Uh, so this is this leads to how our approach is distinct from the COVID-19 vaccine. So mRNA is a remarkable tool, a remarkable technology. We're certainly seeing that in the context of infectious disease vaccines. I believe that we need to even make it stronger in the context of a cancer vaccine. And so we do not give it intramuscularly. What we do is we give the vaccine intravenously. And in that way, it actually looks more dangerous to the immune system. Imagine we took the genetic material of a patient's tumor wrapped it into a nanoparticle, injected it intravenously, that looks a lot like a virus. Most viruses are RNA. It's just information. A virus can't replicate on its own. It just provides information into one of our cells to start making copies of it. Uh, that's what this is. It's information. But now that information looks dangerous to the immune system. And when you inject it in the bloodstream, it looks like the body is being infected by an active virus. And in that way, we think it's necessary in the cancer context, because in the cancer context, the immune system is doing the opposite of what it's supposed to do. So the context of COVID-19, the, the immune system, you're just trying to prevent something before it's already started. The immune system is right. In the cancer context, the immune system is floppy. It's, it's recognizing cancer as self. 
the analogy I give is the immune system functions on this, uh, this fulcrum of killing versus healing. And in the cancer context, the immune system is healing. It is protecting cancer. It's actually part of the problem. And so we give the vaccine intravenously because we found it can actually provide a significant stimulus for waking the immune system up. The second thing we do that's a little different from the current COVID vaccines is how we, how we deliver the RNA. Our RNA nanoparticle vaccines are layered, layered like an onion. So if you imagine the onion has all these different layers, our RNA is packaged into these layers as opposed to the center of, of, of one of these nanoparticles. And so the advantage of this type of a structure, we believe, is we can give more payload per particle because it's layered into this tightly wound particle that's wound by alternating positive negative charge. So the supercoiled uh, RNA nanoparticle is got a lot of RNA in it, more RNA in it than, than perhaps a typical uh, particle. And this RNA material can now uh, alert any cell in a way that we think is stronger in terms of the stimulus because it's being injected IV and because it's delivering more of that dangerous information. I promise you three questions. So sorry to steal the, the limelight here, but question two then is, uh, are there targets that you can break tolerance to? In other words, like you said, the immune system is, is not awoke and, or it's suppressed, and, but are there enough targets? And do you then select your RNAs to include in that particle based on just those targets, or are you sort of taking the entire tumor information, much of which would be self, actual self, um, and putting that in? Sure, it's a great question. In our personalized approach right now, we are taking the entire tumor RNA repertoire. And the reason we're taking the entire repertoire is the immune system should only recognize the RNA material that is completely foreign to it. Any of the T cells, this trained lethal force, any T cells that should respond against normal self should have been eliminated uh, early on in utero during development. These T cells should have been absolutely eliminated. And so all the T cells that should be left are cells that kill anything foreign. So in our first generation approach, at least from a personalized vaccine, we don't filter these for the specific uh, RNAs in the tumor, specific meaning non-cell, just cancer specific. We allow the immune system to decide based on the underlying premise that any cell that would react against self would have been eliminated in utero. Having said that, we are sensitive to the idea that this approach can be potentially refined for a more targeted approach. And we're actively working on filtering this uh, through identification of the best targets uh, and manufacturing just those specific targets in a more filtered, personalized vaccine as a second generation approach. But as the development of a new technology goes, often the first generation platform is studied first in terms of safety and feasibility. And 
we've seen pretty remarkable effects, at least in preclinical models. So we're really hoping this will achieve a uh, survival benefit in the patients that we treat. But we are hopeful that this approach, and this is one of the reasons I'm excited about it, we are hopeful that it can be engineered to be that much better in a second or third generation approach. And that doesn't just mean filtering the antigen. It means delivering other pieces of information. Now you can build this with RNAs that don't just deliver information about what to target, but RNAs to make things that you want to make, like information that can lead to a better memory response. For example, making mRNAs for certain cytokines. Cytokines are communication signals for the immune system that can manipulate it in a manner that's desired. So you can, you can build these with information uh, that cues to the immune system. You can also deliver it with other types of RNAs that can block things that you want to turn off, so-called siRNAs or interfering RNAs that can turn off regulatory mechanisms that the tumor exploits to turn off the immune system. In that manner, there's tremendous capacity for, for enhancement. Oh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like a world's wide open, uh, but I did promise a third question. So the, th the third question was, do you think, do you envision a time when we could use this as an actual vaccination strategy, like in high-risk patients or patients with inherited syndromes that are at risk and you know sort of what tumors are likely to get and what those are likely to be expressed and then do a do an actual prevention strategy like the word vaccination really means? I do, I do. Uh, so what, we're what we've been talking about is a therapeutic vaccine. And I think all vaccines are not created equally in the sense that they are all contextual. If we're talking about a therapeutic vaccine, it has to be built and delivered, in my opinion, differently from a preventative vaccine. I think we're seeing the playbook for a preventative vaccine is playing out with COVID-19. It's remarkable. But in that context, I think, yes, we can make preventative cancer vaccines using a similar playbook based on the information that we're providing based on screening and genomics, RNA synthesis, and preventative vaccination. So absolutely, the, the, the applications are, are myriad. But I don't think it's a one size fits all. I think depending on the context, a vaccine has to be developed both with the RNA components and the nanoparticle component to meet the desired end. Elias, this is fascinating. I think we could have the conversation go on for a long time because there's so many directions we could go. And one of the things that you mentioned um, a few minutes ago was sort of the need for preclinical work. And preclinical can mean tests in the lab, you know, it can be, um, it tests in animals, be they mice, be they other animals. And are there unique challenges about studying the mRNA vaccine strategies, especially for treating cancer in it's kind of the lab and or in the preclinical models? Do you have to generate, you know, mouse specific vaccines? How do you answer those questions to get at the as you alluded to, showing that you see real immune responses that then give you the information to, to sure. try this in the clinic? Sure. Great question. In general, it is so critical that we have animal models that are fully functional with regards to their immune system. What we're, what 
we're trying to do here is basically turn on someone's immune system against their cancer. And a lot of these animal models, they don't have uh, a fully functional immune system. So animal models are critical to show safety, show feasibility, show that something works. And the idea here is allow someone's immune system to work on their behalf, which is, I would argue, that's what the immune system is there for. It protects us from cancer all the time. It's just failed in the context of active cancer, but we believe it can be reprogrammed. And the beauty of it is that it can remember and remember for life. But that's testable. That's testable in an animal model, this lifelong uh, approach I'm, I'm speaking to. And so we initially studied this when we made these vaccines uh, in vitro, making sure that we can have a backbone that delivers RNA, that, ex that has that information expressed into uh, into information, which is protein, uh, that, that, that software, which is the RNA information, can be ultimately made into the hardware of protein. So we do that in vitro, but then we move that into animal studies, seeing whether we can deliver information in the form of RNA to actively manipulate the immune system of an animal. And we do this in, in healthy mice at first, and, and we showed that we could. We could educate a healthy mice, a mouse to remember something we educated it against. And then we took the next step. We looked in mice that had mouse cancer, mouse melanoma, mouse brain cancer, mouse head and neck cancer, mouse osteosarcoma. And in each of these models, we demonstrated that if we took RNA specific to these tumors, and in some cases as an off the shelf vaccine, we could elicit response that not only cured many of these animals, but allowed them to remember. Because, and this is what you could do in animals that you can't do in humans, we injected these survivors with cancer again to see if the cancer would take and to see if they could remember it and reject it. And sure enough, in preponderance of these animals, we saw what we would call memory recall, meaning the ability to remember this as foreign and ward off the tumor challenge. Now, animal models, mouse models, certainly in and of themselves are not enough. We have, especially because this is a new technology, I mean, this is, this is making uh, mRNA, especially in the manner I described and delivering it intravenously is, is, is really never been done before. And so mouse studies are not gonna be enough to move this into humans. And so we've really been blessed uh, to be at the University of Florida which has a uh, College of Veterinary Medicine, which routinely sees large animals, dogs, with spontaneous forms of cancer. Interestingly enough, when dogs develop brain cancer and when dogs develop bone cancer, these look much more like the pediatric forms of these diseases. They look like pediatric osteosarcoma. They look like pediatric glioma. And this allows us to treat these patients as if they're on a first, uh, first in human clinical trial where they're enrolled through their owner's consent because these are terminal diseases in a dog. And we're able to get small pieces of the tumor, manufacture a vaccine, give it back to the animal, just like we would a, a, a human patient. And now we're understanding what it takes to scale this up. We're understanding what it takes to manufacture this in a way that, uh, allows the surgeon to provide the material to us and allows us to understand the timelines involved here. And then 
we can look in these large animals in their blood to see, are we generating the same responses that we generated in mice? You know, and sure enough, we, we, we did see that. And that honestly, more than anything for me, made me believe that this wasn't just a single context, that this wasn't just a mouse vaccine, that now across species, and not just across species, but these are different patients. Each dog is a patient with uh, a spontaneous form of cancer. And every dog we've treated with brain cancer right now has lived longer than expected. And that's, that's, that's been remarkable for us to at least uh, be a part of. Now it's a small cohort of patients. And at the end of the day, the canine studies were really done more to assess feasibility and safety and scale up and looking at biomarkers for response. Sounds like an awful lot of work, but an awful lot of progress as well. Uh, have you seen any toxicities or side effects? What or what could you expect to run into? Yeah, great question. And that's really th this has been the huge value of the canine trials in in being able to assess these things. This vaccine that we've made elicits a, a very potent innate response, and the idea of of mRNA vaccines, of any vaccine really, is to elicit an adaptive response. When I say adaptive, I mean something specific. Innate is non-specific immunity. Adaptive is very specific immunity to the information you're trying to educate the immune system against. And these mRNA vaccines elicit a very non-specific effect. And when I say non-specific, I mean it happens rapidly. We see within a few hours of a vaccine very robust. Uh, immune signals. We believe this is essential. I believe this is the starting point of immunotherapy, is reprogramming the immune system. So while I refer to this as a vaccine, and the idea of this is a vaccine to elicit a specific response that can kill the specific thing that you've educated against, the starting point in cancer, in my opinion, is reprogramming, is to reprogram the clumsy, floppy immune system into something that is once more a lethal force. And in the absence of doing that, in the absence of reprogramming these cancers, of, in the absence of waking up the immune system, none of these other tools that we have matter, whether it's a vaccine or an immune checkpoint inhibitor or even a, uh, or even a T cell, a, a CAR T cell perhaps, Waking up the immune system, ma making a ripe environment for that immune system to, to work is essential. And these vaccines elicit a very significant innate response that reprograms these tumors. And I, we know this from the canine tumors. If you give an RNA nanoparticle vaccine 24 hours before a canine's tumor biopsy, we see substantial reprogramming in that tumor. So this non-specific immune response we generate elicits immune activation in the tumor in less than 24 hours. We see information in that tumor that is much more in line with an activated immune response. We see, and it's, it's when you compare that to, to tumors, canine tumors that didn't get vaccine, it is like night and day cold versus hot in terms of the absence of an immune response and the presence of an immune response. Now, this is an innate immune response, a non-specific activation of the immune system, which again, I would argue is critical to reprogramming that tumor, allowing now the adaptive response, which takes time. 
takes weeks before you get a good adaptive response. But now it can be unlocked. It can be unlocked because you have woken up the immune system and you've reprogrammed so many of the weeds that exist in this tumor, in these tumors that are very difficult for, for any immunotherapy, any adaptive response to overcome. So this vaccine is, it is a hybrid. It is an, we see it as an immunomodulatory agent in eliciting a very significant innate response. But that immunomodulation, I argue, is critical to unlocking the vaccine-mediated effects, the adaptive effects. I hope that answered the question. There was a second part. Yeah, that was great. And that's a really important insight, I think, to how these might be working. Because if it was just creating T cells against the target, they're going to have the same challenges as CAR Ts or other things penetrating cell tumors. So you're telling us there's this extra component that's really maybe clearing the way for them in the tumor microenvironment, which is really cool. Do you think that's due to just the lipid? Nanoparticle or it's the RNA or the whole thing. We know. we know it's not the nanoparticle alone. That 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 we know. RNA is not stable, so RNA needs like our COVID vaccines. RNA for as amazing as mRNA is, it's you, it needs a delivery vehicle. It needs it's like a virus needs a capsid to deliver that information. We with the COVID vaccines need a lipid nanoparticle to deliver that information. So the information is powerful. But if the information can't be delivered, there isn't a courier to deliver information, it's, it's, it's pointless, that information dies. It's the same with R RNA. So the RNA, if you inject naked RNA without a delivery vehicle, it just degrades very rapidly and doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really do anything. So um, the combination is critical. The lipid nanoparticle is the, is, is, is the courier. The RNA is the, the all-powerful information that elicits these things. Elias, I think we could chat about this uh, for many hours. There are so many things to talk about. We are coming up on the time we have together, but I wanted to ask you if you could just summarize uh, what you see as the key challenges and opportunities of mRNA vaccines in pediatric cancer in the next very near future, but long-term. And, um, and what, what would your vision be um, if these really came into the clinic? Uh, my, my vision is paradigm shift. You know, I, I, when I think of the history of pediatric oncology, it's, it's an incredible history. It's an incredible history of innovators uh, and change agents. And in many ways, it was pediatric oncologists who transformed the entire field of oncology. Uh, by this is what this is how combination chemotherapy was born, and as amazing as all of that has been, I felt that we've plateaued as a field over over the last several decades. There have been that is not to minimize many successes we've had, but I've always felt there's something unnatural about a chemotherapy approach, uh, and it's it always bothers me that it doesn't work on the patient's behalf after the infusion, when they're following up years after cancer. The terror that patients feel, uh, that they articulate, uh, even after the cure, that, 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 that haunts them for the rest of their life, even if, if it never comes back. So the idea that something can be there to protect you lifelong, like the immune system, to me, it just resonates. It resonates as something that should happen and can happen. 
And I believe the mRNA vaccine technology is, 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 a, is a big step into a larger world. Do I think it's as a monotherapy, the cure for cancer? I do not. But I think just like the advent of chemotherapy and combination chemotherapy that elicit, has elicited remarkable cures in our patients, I think mRNA vaccines can be a step into a much larger world of using just the immune system to cure cancer. And now our task is to show feasibility, safety of these things, activity, and develop rational combinations. Rational combinations with other T-cell approaches, other immunomodulatory approaches, checkpoint inhibitors, oncolytic viral therapy. There are a myriad of different combinations we, I think, need to try to elicit long-term protection in our patients. And I do believe these mRNA vaccines uh, must be a significant part of that, that process. We have a lot of work ahead of us. Uh, and I, I really look forward to seeing uh, that vision realized. And I'll ask uh, Tim if he has any final thoughts, questions, comments. Uh, just thanks for being on and sharing that with us. It's very exciting. We would definitely want to have you back to get some follow-up. Uh, certainly as you, I know, as we talked about earlier in the pre-recorded session that COVID's gotten away a lot of progress on this and you've just now started enrolling some patients, but we definitely want to hear how it's going later to the extent that you're able to share. And we're hoping you get lots of funding and continue to be able to do this, this good work. And we're very excited. So thanks. Well, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor and a privilege really to be here. Thank you for doing this. This is, this is a fantastic forum. Yes, and, and thank you to Dr. Elias Sayer for this fantastic conversation. I wanna thank my co-host, Dr. Tim Kripe, and many thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsompdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu and find all TWPO episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.